Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Uh, today we are going to be continuing our scripted series on prayer, the meaning of prayer, why we pray, and what prayer means with respect to the human vocation in the world and the nature of man in relation to God's world. Before we get into the substance of the video, I wanted to update you on the some housekeeping issues. Number one, on the Patreon, I'm very happy to announce that uh, I will be upgrading the amount of content that every tier uh, will be receiving. So if you go to my Patreon, you will see three tiers, $5, $10, and $20. And if you donate uh, at any one of those tiers, you are going to get certain premium content. At the $5 and up level, you will be getting... Uh, all of my chapter-by-chapter -chapter discussions of the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, and we will also be doing uh, analyses of other uh, fictional texts, other texts kind of in that, that same kind of general arena, things which have something perhaps to say to the main uh, themes of this channel. Uh, at the $10 level, you will have access to all weekly book reviews, and in a number of weeks there will be more than one book review. And I want to emphasize that I am not producing these videos instead of my projected amount of content for a general audience. Uh, rather, I will be producing premium content on top of that free content. So I've been on vacation for the past uh, week and a half or so. I've just finished my THM thesis, so going forward, you are going to see a lot more content coming out. And at the top level, the $20 plus level, you'll get everything from the previous two tiers, but you're also going to get a guaranteed slot, and I, I really do cringe speaking this way, but people people have asked for something like this. Gu guaranteed slot, if you want to talk to me about something, I'll give you my phone number, and we can talk through a an issue for... Um, at least an hour, and it may well go on more than that, but of course you're not going to be charged for any additional time. Now, I'm not saying I'm not going to talk to people for free. I'm happy to do that, depending on how important I think it is, but if you are at the top tier, at least once a month, you will have a guaranteed slot um, that we can arrange to talk through some issues. So, um, the Patreon uh, has been going pretty well, and uh, it's not just you know some you know, side project for me. It is important in terms of the continued productivity of this channel. So if you get if you get something out of this channel, if you want to keep seeing it produce videos, then please consider if you are in a good position contributing to the Patreon. And if you think the channel is crap, well, of course it is what it is. I'm not going to expect you to donate. But if you don't. Um, I would really appreciate it. Um, also, uh, please take a look at the community posts in terms of prayer requests. Uh, I'll make a video specifically about this probably later today or tomorrow. Uh, but with that said, uh, let's get into today's video. Uh, I'm going to be rereading the last paragraph that we left off on because it segs into the section that we're really starting today. So if you haven't seen the other videos on the theology of prayer, it might help to go and watch those first 
though you don't have to, um, but it is part of the same kind of uh, script. Okay, so when Israel's mind is filled with the reality of their faithful God, they become what the human being is meant to become, a microcosm of reality. To remember God is to be included in God's outward self-extension in constituting the world. The glory of God reaches out and sanctifies the mind, but as we know from our preceding videos, there is more to this. In the motion whereby God extends himself outwards to constitute the world by creatively imprinting his divine processions, the cosmos is gathered back into his divine heart. To be irradiated by divine thought means that you are reaching outwards and gathering up the rest of creation into your heart and into your mind, and thus, through you, into the heart and mind of God. So Israel, when it lives, has lived faithfully, refracts the glory of God out to the nations, and thus gathers the nations into her bosom and offers them to God. We see this in many places through Moses and the prophets. Most obviously would be during the era of kings David and Solomon. Two men who are after the heart of God, for whom God is their thought from the rising to the setting of the sun, which read the Psalter. The Psalter in the Solomonic literature, which these men produce, is literature which manifests in its every letter the thorough permeation of God's Torah, God's instruction, through their entire being. To become wise is to apprehend the thoughts of God so profoundly that one is able to intuitively translate these thoughts into any situation which one encounters. This is what Solomon does when two prostitutes bring him a child, both of them claiming to be the mother. When he decides the case, he does not decide a case that has already been resolved by the explicit text of the five book Torah. He instead applies the wisdom that he has learned by digesting that text to a new situation. The book of Psalms takes the five books of divine Torah, divine instruction, God's inspired word to Israel, and it reverts, it returns them back to God as five books of inspired song. And I am presuming, of course, that the five book structure of the Psalter is original to the book composed by David and Asaph, which I think is a reasonable assumption. The other Psalms, and there actually were not and a huge number of post-Davidic psalms. There were some of them. Uh, but those other psalms were integrated into a pre-existing five-book structure. The Psalter is written specifically for the life of the sanctuary on Mount Zion, described in 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is not, by the way, the same as the temple on Mount Moriah. The sanctuary on Zion includes Gentiles, to an unprecedented degree. And this is one reason why James quotes a prophetic text, not about the restoration of the temple per se, but about the restoration of the Davidic sanctuary in Zion, Amos 9:11-15, in order to settle the question of Gentile inclusion into the life of the church. In fact, the nations become part of the temple through their contributions, specifically in the contributions of Hiram of Tyre. It is a spiritual principle that the sanctuary is a sign of the nation and that the nation causes its existence by active participation both in its construction 
and its life. For example, Exodus 25 verse 2 says that the tabernacle was made out of the hearts of the Israelites who were moved in their hearts to make contributions. And so ever after, the tabernacle and the temple is understood as the architectural heart of the body Israel. When Hiram of Tyre contributes wood to the temple, his name and the name of his nation is engraved into the heart of Israel, whereupon are the eyes of the Lord at every moment. It's the way that King Solomon describes the relationship of the temple to the eyes of God. Think of how in our divine liturgy, we commemorate every single week the, quote, builders of this holy temple. Think of how we will say things like, lift up your hearts. Israel becomes full of divine thought, such that God's memory of the nations is gathered into his bosom, into his heart, through Israel's instrumental work in bearing out his name. So let's expand back outwards beyond the Old Covenant. We have seen the significance of memory for God and his people. God creates the world by thinking it up in his mind. He sustains it by keeping that which he has thought up in his mind in existence. And most importantly, for our purposes, he has freely placed man at the crossroads, at the intersection of the divine constitution and glorification of the cosmos. In shaping the human family as his image, as his single image, he has imbued the conscious activity of mankind with immense ontological significance. The Incarnation, therefore, is naturally the perfect declaration and explanation of God's eternal purpose in and through the human family. The constant mission of the enemy, of the devil, is to get the cosmos destroyed. He tries to pull this nonsense with the golden calf incident, with the pre-flood world, with the incident at Peor, where this is the plot of Balak and Balaam after ba Balaam found that he could not curse Israel directly, and again and again and again. His desire was to stir up the cosmos and specifically the will of man to such a degree that God's only option would be to dissolve creation itself. I just want to note here, it is very interesting that in certain ancient texts, there is the idea that the flood was a plot by the gods to destroy mankind. But one of the gods intervened and saved mankind from that destruction. We might have more to say on that another time, but many of these ancient traditions are essentially demonic propaganda, where there is a rebellion in heaven, that was a cataclysmic failure in Ugarit uh, and in certain other idolatrous societies, we hear a silly story that their rebellion was a success, that Baal, in fact, won the day, and that he now reigns in place of his uh, dethroned father. In response to the devil's attempts to get God to destroy his own world, God simply ties himself 
to the mast of the ship in the person of Jesus Christ. God is so committed to the vindication of his purpose in the cosmos that he makes the dissolution of the cosmos dependent on his own dissolution, which is metaphysically self-contradictory. It's as coherent as a square circle. And this means that the creation now shares in divine existence in the most intense possible way. Christ is the existent one, and he has made the world his own. Consider how all of the above relates to the mission of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. God's mind, in which the ideas or logi of the world are thought up, becomes the mind of one particular human being, Jesus the Nazarene. And thus, in him, according to Paul, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is how he brought the redemption through the cross, the grave, the resurrection, and the ascension. The eradication of creation depended on the devil's ability to rupture the world internally by splitting mankind into ever tinier pieces. The nations go to war with each other, but nations also go to war with themselves. Political intrigue, assassination, violent crime, and so on. Not only so, but individuals go to war with themselves. The mind and the heart are opposed to one another. A person both worships and reviles himself. The body rises up against the mind, and it goes all the way down. The shattering of all things to ever more fragmented degrees would then, or so the demonic self-delusion went, led to God's decision, would lead to God's decision to revoke his covenant and to dissolve the world. In overcoming the separation of the cosmos from God and from itself, the word of God in whom all things find their purpose as part in light of the whole became an integral part of the creation. Since God co-constitutes the world in its fullness with mankind, the word of God became a human being. Jesus lived a full human life according to a divine pattern of existence. And in the redemption, he remembered all things. At every point in his life, with every choice, and with every act, he was supremely bonded to his Father in heaven by faithfulness, and to the rest of the human family, and to the creation by perfect love. As he ascended to the cross, all creation in its unity, and every creature in its particularity, was fully present in the mind of Jesus Christ. He remembered all things. He was the divine Logos, in whom all Logi, all memory, is present eternally. And in being the divine Logos, who had made a fully human mind his own, the work of redemption and glorification occurs exactly as God purposed it from the beginning, namely through the cooperation and co-sharing of the world's constitution with man. The Logi of all creation are compressed into the divine word according to his incarnate economy. 
as he perfectly remembers God, in that very same act where he perfectly remembers the creation, thus permanently and irrevocably, bringing the holiness of God into the world forever. So, we're now about halfway through this series, and what I'm trying to do is lay a foundation to explain why prayer has significance in itself as prayer, not just as an appeal to someone who might work on our behalf, but rather as the very means by which we are incorporated into his work. By the uh, Prayer makes us the instruments of God's work, but not only that. As we will see, what prayer does is it joins us to God in such a way that our free wills, given their freedom by the creative sustenance of God, actually come to be able to determine the mode in which God pours himself freely and in love into the world. So thank you for listening today, and I will be back uh, possibly later today, uh, definitely tomorrow. If you are a plus or a elite patron, there will be two book reviews today. Uh, one of them will be on Richard Balcom's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and the other will probably be, probably be John Stillhammer's Meaning of the Benetton. And both of those should be about 20 to 30 minutes. So if you have not done so already, um, and if you are planning on doing so, I would very much, uh, I would be very thankful, um, though, you know, just all things being equal. Um, if, if it's all equal to you, be very thankful if you signed up uh, by the end of today and you will have access to not only the content that's already been, um, or that, that will be released, but also the premium content that has been released in the past. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your participation. It is such an encouragement. Um, this is, it is genuinely a delight to engage with you all. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, continuing um, this partnership. So thank you very much, and I will talk to you again soon.